interested in on uh, Mr. Grossman's Vietnam Veterans Group. Um, Dr. Fine, uh, actually I met him at my synagogue where he did a wonderful presentation on his work. And um, I was just telling my class that in preparation for your coming, uh, they were reading about the history of PTSD uh -huh. and periods of amnesia about uh, the, the impact of war and uh, connecting that with the symptoms of numbing that come mm -hmm. along with amnesia and the, um, the need to uh, address these terrible secrets to uh, be able to go from the, the idea of reliving and, and being in the intrusiveness of thoughts to having this work at a period of time when us as a society needs to understand these, these secrets and the pain. So I'm going to ask you if you would allow me to. Um, we, we, is our, our, I think we're on. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're going to be recording today. And um, if you would uh, first allow Mr. Grossman and Dr. Fine to, to give their presentations. Uh, for the sake of our audio uh, recording, we'll then be able to have you answer or ask questions. And when the questions come, they may not be heard. So I'm going to rephrase the quickly uh, say what your question was. So that the logistics of our audio will be uh, able to connect with their answers and your questions. Um, I, I got a background on both. Mr. Grossman and Dr. Klein, um, and um, I would just like to summarize a little bit of what hopefully I'll remember well. <laughs> um, Dr. Klein is the director of the uh, PTSD program at the VA hospital. He uh, has created an interdisciplinary model that uh, incorporates group work as a quite a big component. Um, the VA hospital has veterans from World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam War, and now the Iraq and Afghanistan War. And Dr. Fine has a wealth of knowledge to share with us. Um, Mr. Grossman has been a group leader and, uh, and the coordinator of the um, PTSD program at the VA hospital. He has decades of experience working with Korean veterans, with Vietnam veterans, and I was just in awe of his skills when I sat in on that group. And um, he has members in his group that have been there for many years, which is an unusual model. Um, I'm eager to let them, at this point, tell you about what they're doing at the VA hospital. Um, would you like to begin? Or? Sure. I, okay. I will be happy to start. Um, <coughs> first of all, let me say that it's a, it's a real pleasure and privilege to be here. Uh, and I wanted to uh, thank Professor Plass for the invitation. It's uh, something that we take very seriously in our program as having a very strong teaching component as well as the, the clinical one. So we uh, 
work with uh, medical students, residents, uh, social work interns, psychology interns, etc. Et uh, and it's something we see as, as part of our mission is, is sort of spreading the word and uh, the awareness about trauma-related issues. So uh, it's, it's really a treat to be here. Um, the other thing I guess I'll start off with is just uh, one minor correction. Uh, uh, Professor Plass said that uh, Steve here has decades of experience, and uh, while it sometimes feels like we've been working since the Civil War, it's, it's probably more, <laughs> uh, more like one decade or plus, right? Uh, close to two, actually. Close to two. Cool. Um, in any case, we have a um, fairly uh, large uh, program that has hundreds and hundreds of veterans. Um, we sometimes joke that it's on the McDonald's model of billions and billions served. Uh, but uh, in any case, we, uh, we have a very extensive uh, program that involves lots of individual therapy, which is a core component and something not to be neglected in its relation to uh, group work, either concurrently or preparing patients for group. Uh, but we also have a very extensive um, uh, emphasis on group therapy. It's something that I believe in very strongly. It's something that was actually present in the program uh, before I arrived, and it's something that we've collaboratively uh, uh, expanded. Uh, we have groups that are homogeneous groups for era-specific veterans, so we have uh, quite a few Vietnam combat uh, groups. We have a World War II group, which I lead. We have a, which is quite amazing, we have uh, about 18 to 20 people that come on a regular basis for that. We have a Korean War group. We now have uh, two different uh, Iraq uh, war groups with, with somewhat different models. Um, and we also have a lot of special population groups that include medics, POWs, uh, women, uh, survivors of uh, sexual trauma. Um, and we also have some other groups that are related to uh, family issues. We, we used to have a couples group, and we still have a parenting group. So there's really a wide range of types of groups and also of uh, models of group therapy. Uh, I'm going to limit my initial remarks. I'm not, uh, not done yet, uh, but uh, we uh, are going to try to save time to have a, a presentation about uh, two groups in particular, the Vietnam and Korean group, and talk about some similarities and differences and um, but before we get to that, uh, I just wanted to uh, say a little introductory piece about post-traumatic stress and the effects of trauma, and also what aspects of it lead to uh, make, make group therapy particularly uh, important and suitable for it. So as I'm sure many of you or most would know, um, PTSD is based on the experience of an overwhelming, life-threatening, catastrophic trauma. And while there's been some debate about the fine points of how you draw the boundaries of what constitutes a trauma, um, essentially uh, an experience that, uh, that creates an immediate threat to either your life or your body integrity, as in the case of some uh, sexual assaults, 
uh, and that is coupled with a sense of intense horror, helplessness, feeling overwhelmed uh, at the time of the of the trauma. Uh, and when people are traumatized, but from whatever the cause, whether it's combat, whether it's natural disaster, whether it's malevolent human interactions and uh, uh, within families or within the uh, community at large, anytime someone is subject to a, an intense trauma, it leads to certain characteristic responses. And those occur across a range of dimensions. They can, uh, first of all, there are very profound and long-lasting biological effects from trauma. Trauma affects the central nervous system. It affects the way our autonomic nervous system responds uh, with a fight-flight response, uh, which is derived through uh, eons and eons of evolution. When, when humans were first uh, prey instead of predators, um, uh, but in any case, that the autonomic nervous system is affected, uh, the uh, neuroendocrine system is affected, so the pituitary axis and uh, hormonal axis, neurotransmitter systems are affected, pain management systems in the body, all of these things are profoundly altered. Uh, in addition to that, there are very profound intra-psychic changes uh, that have to do with the person's basic sense of self, their sense of safety in the world, uh, how they interpret their experience at the time of the trauma, and that in turn leads to certain clusters of symptoms that are the core of PTSD. So for example, um, people who have been traumatized will typically re-experience that event in multiple ways in a kind of repetitive and involuntary way. People will be unable to stop thinking about the event. It comes into their mind uh, frequently when they want to focus on other things. Uh, it comes into their mind in ways that are highly disruptive, emotional, distressing, and so forth. Those are what we call intrusive memories that you can't control or dispel. Uh, people will relive the trauma as if it's happening right then and there. So they'll be thrown into a kind of time-space warp and they'll be right back in the rice paddies of Vietnam or right back in the, uh, you know, in the uh, alleyways of Fallujah or, uh, or right back, in, if it's the, the case of a, a sexual assault, they may be thrown right back into the experience of being attacked and assaulted and at least momentarily dissociate and lose track of... Um, where they are and what's happening. They'll re-experience the trauma in terms of nightmares. So they'll have uh, very intense, very vivid, very detailed uh, nightmares, which are somewhat different from ordinary dreams in that they're not just uh, blended symbolic mixtures of uh, uh, symptoms and characters from different times in your life and so on. They're often what we call sort of VCR, or now maybe it's DVD type uh, replays of the of the original trauma. So with almost as if you're just reliving the exact event, but it happens during sleep. Uh, so those are some of what we call the re-experiencing symptoms. Um, in addition, patients or people, I should say, who are 
uh, who have been traumatized are also revved up. They have what we call hyperarousal. Their whole nervous system is, uh, is reset. Uh, they tend to be hyper alert, hyper vigilant so that they won't uh, uh, be caught off guard and surprised by a traumatic danger. They don't sleep well. They have profound sleep disruption, and so that insomnia is part of this hyperarousal. They're irritable and angry, often explosive. Um, they will have, uh, as I mentioned, this sense of being super alert and on guard and watchful, uh, and they are very jumpy, and they startle easily if there are loud noises that may replicate some aspect of the trauma, like artillery. Um, the third cluster has to do with what we call avoidance or, or numbing, and naturally people who have been traumatized don't want to go anywhere near that again. To paraphrase Virginia Woolf when she was asked whether life, whether art should imitate life, she said, one of the damn things enough. Well, <laughs> in terms of experiencing trauma, going through it once is enough, but then having to repeat it over and over in your mind during the day and at night uh, is terrible. So people will try as hard as they can to block out, suppress, uh, avoid anything that brings up those feelings, avoid reminders or triggers. They'll try to avoid uh, interpersonal interactions that may bring the traumatic memory into play. Um, they'll try to suppress those feelings if they arise spontaneously, so often with alcohol or drugs. Um, and mostly they will numb out. They'll, uh, what we call emotional numbing, which is a, a kind of suppression or dulling of the emotional sensitivity because they're so on edge and so in so much pain they essentially uh, will have the, the reaction of uh, blocking out that emotional responsiveness and then that generalizes across a lot of interactions so that uh, they are often described as people who are cold, unemotional, unresponsive, which in turn has a profound effect on how they socialize and how they interact in families and so forth. So that numbing, while it's a more subtle symptom than the very dramatic flashbacks and so on, uh, actually has a very profound effect on social interaction. So that's sort of the core of PTSD. There's a lot more to it. There are issues with guilt and especially survivor guilt. There are issues with somatization. People will often have multiple complex uh, physical reactions and sensations that are related to the trauma. There are issues with depression and anxiety and panic attacks. And there are issues with dissociating or spacing out, zoning out. Uh, so there are many, many layers of symptoms that are involved in uh, somebody who has been traumatized. Uh, and many of those also have a biological underpinning to it as well. All right, so let's uh, stop with the symptoms for the moment. We can come back to that. But in terms of group therapy, and I promise to uh, keep, this, uh, keep this limited, which is not easy for me, but I will try. Uh, in terms of what is it about group that's important? Well, the first thing is that the, uh, that the experience of trauma leads to profound disruptions in the ability to trust. 
Okay? The many veterans, certainly, who have been traumatized and many people, uh, let's say, from child abuse uh, survivors uh, have a intense feeling of distrust because other people have uh, mistreated them, abused them, betrayed them, uh, in the case of combat, tried to kill them, um, and that leaves a very profound residue that it's impossible to, uh, to trust anybody or their motives, and even when things seem to be safe and okay, they're really not. People who have been traumatized have the sense that things can change in a split second, that all of a sudden you can be, you know, uh, uh, on a boat on the uh, Mekong River or something, and it's a beautiful day with a lush green canopy of jungle, and all of a sudden all hell breaks out with a uh, burst of fire from the trees, and the person next to you is lying bleeding. So there's a sense that all of a sudden um, the danger can erupt out of nowhere so that even when things seem to be stable, they're really not safe. Um, well, what are some of the elements of group therapy that are, that are important in dealing with these problems? One is that uh, there is a sense of people who are profoundly isolated, who are profoundly uh, disconnected from society, who feel that they don't fit in, that they're not understood well, all of a sudden find a group of people who have shared some things in common. Now, it's important to understand they don't share everything. Each individual in a group is unique and has their own experiences and sometimes uh, very different personalities. But they share something in common, and included in that is a, an implicit acceptance of one another. And so that becomes enormously important. Um, secondly, there is the act of telling. Okay? Therapy in general is about narrative, or often it's about narrative, but in the case of trauma, it's enormously important that there's an element of bearing witness. There is a public act in group therapy where the traumatized person says, here I am, this is what happened to me, this is the horror that I've experienced, I've never talked about this with anyone or very few people, and I'm telling the group this so that you can validate, so that you can, in some cases, modify or correct perceptions, and so that you can give feedback about it that helps to differentiate the response to it. Uh, so this bearing witness is very, very important in group therapy. Um, and then the other thing, and then since I'm watching the clock and I will uh, be quiet for... Um, and that is that one of the things that happens in trauma is that the basic set of assumptions about the world gets smashed. Okay? Most people, in order to uh, get through the day, so to speak, have certain unconscious assumptions about life. Namely, that the sun will rise tomorrow, that it's a relatively ordered and safe environment that I'm overall on balance a pretty decent good person I have my faults, I have my problems but overall I'm good and other people are not out to kill me and so there's, there's this overall assumption of 
some degree of orderly existence and safety. Um, and that gets totally demolished in trauma because all of a sudden you're exposed to the fact that the world is not safe. You can die or your friends can die in a split second. There are malevolent people out there who do want to hurt you uh, and, in fact, uh, act that out and do uh, cause harm. And so a big part of group therapy is trying to address some of the hits that have been taken by these basic assumptions. So it's a, a different way of looking at group therapy basic assumptions than Dion, who talks about dependency and fusion groups and so on. But here you're talking about the, the sense that the basic belief in goodness and so on is, is shattered. So these are some of the things. I'm going to, obviously, there's a huge amount to talk about, and hopefully in the discussion phase we will uh, get to that. But let me stop there for the moment and yep. uh, let you guys hear about some really amazing groups that, uh, that Steve runs. And well, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's a tough act to follow. Um, but uh, I'll try. I, I also want to thank uh, uh, Professor Plassey for inviting us uh, to do this presentation. It's, it's wonderful, actually, to see uh, a sea of um, social work faces out there. Uh, uh, there tends to be a, somewhat of a frenzy at the VA to hire uh, PhD psychologists to do PTSD work. I'd like to see more social workers actually there. Um, you know, just a quick background uh, on, on my history at the VA. Uh, I started uh, in 1987, came in doing uh, renal work for about a year. I did two years working with homeless veterans and started working with PTSD in 1989, and I've been doing that since. Um, the program has uh, uh, developed over that time uh, unbelievably. Um, the, the group that I'm going to talk about mostly today is my Vietnam group that I do, and, and this is a little scarier than facing my 25 uh, Vietnam veterans on Friday, but uh, I, 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 uh, I'll talk a little bit about that, and that is that uh, this group uh, is a, uh, it's a hybrid uh, group. Uh, it was developed in collaboration with the vet centers. Now, the vet centers are satellite uh, uh, treatment uh, facilities off campus uh, in Manhattan. There exist two uh, uh, vet centers. Uh, they also do uh, individual and group therapy. Well, uh, in starting my Vietnam group uh, about 15 years ago, I collaborated with one of the team leaders from the Manhattan Vet Center. And uh, the uh, group initially started as, a, uh, as an inpatient group exclusively. Uh, we would go uh, to the inpatient on occasion when we were called to screen patients, and we would ask them if they wanted to uh, involve themselves in group therapy. So it began as a, an inpatient group. It evolved into an outpatient group because the inpatients after discharge would be coming back, and before we knew it, we had more outpatients than inpatients. So it, it evolved into an outpatient group. My group is unusual, my Friday group. The, 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 the traditional models of group do not have uh, 25 or 30 uh, uh, participants sitting uh, there, uh, uh, but it works. It, it works for various reasons. Now, uh, Professor Plassey uh, had mentioned uh, the size of the group earlier. 
Uh, I, had, I had mentioned to her, and I think she, she saw for herself when she sat in on the group, that there's a, there's a core grouping of, of veterans who have been in the group for uh, uh, ten, at least 10 years, a minimum of 10 years. There's about 10 to 15 uh, group members that serve as a core group. Uh, in, in essence, they're a de facto mentoring uh, group within the group. Uh, so when new veterans come into the group, uh, they, uh, they have someone to look to. Uh, there are role models. There are uh, patients, veterans who have a great knowledge of PTSD. And they want to continue coming to the group because it still is the only place where they can talk about these ongoing issues that come up for them. Uh, PTSD tends to be a chronic illness. Uh, there is a community of veterans at the VA hospital, so this is a place where they feel comfortable, where they feel safe, as Dr. Fine pointed out. Um, so I'm a great believer in this large group experience. Uh, Dr. Fine has been kind of bothering and nagging me for a number of years to write an article describing this group and, and what we do and its successes, and I haven't done that in about uh, 10 to 15 years, but I, I, I do need it. to do Yeah, we should do it. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, let me just say a little bit more uh, about the, 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 the shared experience. Of course, uh, the group is made up of uh, all uh, veterans who served in Vietnam. 90% uh, are combat veterans who served in combat areas. Uh, they share a diagnosis of PTSD. That is a major criteria, of course, for being in the group. Um, uh, many have secondary uh, access one diagnoses, schizoaffective. Some have uh, bipolar, OCD. Uh, of course, substance abuse, uh, which is a major problem, drug and alcohol. Uh, the group is diverse racially, ethnically. Uh, in many ways, this large group experience, and I really want to emphasize this, uh, replicates uh, the platoon structure. Uh, and in, in doing so, um, it provides a, a place where veterans can feel safe. Uh, when you have 20 or 25 veterans sitting around you, uh, it, 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 it provides some safety and support. Um, so uh, the group acts uh, mostly as a trauma-focused group, <clears throat> it acts as a support group. Uh, at times, we, we try doing psychodynamic work as well. I enjoy doing that. Uh, I enjoy doing that in my individual work, and I, I try to bring it to uh, elements of, of that to the group. Uh, but it tends to be an eclectic approach. Uh, we use uh, whatever works, um, and I'll talk a little bit later, uh, not too much later, but about spiritual aspects that uh, we're in involving in the group as well. Uh, there are recurring themes, and Dr. Fine has talked about some of them, the internal uh, conflicts uh, that, um, uh, pay, uh, these are themes, group themes, uh, death, loss, major theme, uh, internal conflict, ambivalence, uh, that veterans have about what they experienced in the war, what they did in the war, what they carried out. Uh, is this contrary to the way they were raised uh, uh, growing up? Uh, Dr. Fine alluded to that. Um, the importance of bonding, bonding with fellow veterans. Um, when 
Vietnam veterans came back, came home from Vietnam, they were isolated, they were misunderstood, they were rejected, even by their own families, uh, immediate families and such. Uh, so here the bonding becomes crucial to uh, survival and uh, quality of life. Uh, issues of trust that Dr. Fine mentioned uh, are enormous. Um, learning how to relate to civilians who don't understand them, uh, taking some of the some of the uh, things they learn in group outside of the group uh, and relating to civilians, relating to family members, relating to children, relating to wives. Um, I just want to uh, refer to uh, uh, Irvin Yalom. I'm a big uh, fan of, of course, most of you are probably familiar with Yalom on group work. And um, just to run through some of his uh, therapeutic factors that we... Uh, uh, involve in in my group therapy and that is uh, in installa- uh, you know to instill hope in people very very important these are people who come to us uh, lacking hope um, really uh, uh, in some cases suicidal um, um, imparting information the group is uh, crucial for that purpose uh, not only information about PTSD but information about other issues uh, like compensation, financial issues, housing issues, um, uh, uh, altruism, uh, and, and Dr. Fine alluded to this. You know, a uh, you know the, the the natural state for Vietnam veterans is a sense of sacrifice. These are guys who served in combat, who who would give their lives up for their their comrades. So uh, to feel that feeling again, that that feeling of altruism that feeling of giving to somebody else that has been uh, suppressed for, for many years post-Vietnam is crucial for them. Uh, being isolated. Most of our veterans come to us uh, isolated. Uh, uh, to be in a group with uh, veterans that they, they have common and shared experiences, histories, feelings is crucial for their lives. Socializing techniques, of course, they learn almost had to re-socialize again, you know. Uh, uh, going back to what Dr. Fine was talking about, many, many Vietnam veterans uh, uh, do not know how to socialize in a world uh, dominated by civilians, of course, in, in this kind of world. Uh, so uh, learning to socialize again in the group and then again trying to take this outside of the group in their own lives. Um, uh, interpersonal learning, of course, that goes on the group. Group cohesiveness, instilling a sense of belonging, of course. Uh, this, is, this is crucial uh, for Vietnam veterans. It is, uh, the, these are uh, people uh, who have been alienated, isolated, uh, feeling alone, feeling that they had no one to talk to, not even their closest, immediate family. I have veterans that I work with who never, never, and this is incredible, even to me sometimes, never spoke about Vietnam to their wives in, in 30 years, 40 years of marriage, um, uh, and never spoke to anyone about it. Uh, imagine what it, what it means and what it takes to hold in such uh, intense feelings and experiences to keep it to yourself. 
Um, it's no wonder many uh, turn to alcohol and drugs uh, to to survive uh, during this during this period. Um, of course, there is a catharsis that goes on. It is a place where many Vietnam veterans can come to vent, uh, sometimes vent their anger and rage. It is a safe place, usually, if, if, if there are boundaries, of course, and not to go beyond those boundaries, but uh, we allow, of course, veterans to express their anger and rage. Uh, this has been sitting there for 30 or 40 years. So venting is, is, is extremely important. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, my Korean group. <coughs> I've been doing that for about 10 years as well. Uh, now, there, there, there are some distinctions to be drawn between the Korean group, of course, and the Vietnam group. Uh, the first thing that is obvious is the age factor. Uh, the average age of the Korean vets are, are 75. The average age of the Vietnam uh, veterans in my group are about 58 or so. So we, we have this uh, generational uh, difference, which, which plays a very important role in how you approach treatment and therapy with these two different groups. With my Korean group, um, they, uh, uh, for the most part, come from a generation where uh, talking about these things, uh, talking about feelings, expressing feelings, is really taboo. You know, in the 1950s, uh, so forth, the early 60s, early 60s, uh, you know, it was, it was taboo to talk about feelings, uh, unmanly to talk about feelings, uh, weak, uh, the connotation of being weak if you, if you talk about your feelings and discuss your feelings. The Vietnam uh, veterans are somewhat different in this respect. They come from the generation of the 60s, uh, the, the whole therapy movement in the 60s, which was uh, uh, very important in, in beginning to open up, uh, you know, and Herbert Marcuse and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, so, so th this, is, uh, this, this was very important for this uh, group of veterans. Uh, they are able to uh, touch upon feelings, experiences, open up more than the Korean veterans. So the approach is somewhat different. Uh, we may spend time in the Korean group, for instance, talking more about uh, uh, current events, uh, and perhaps relate that uh, at times to their own lives and how that affects their own lives. Of course, we do touch upon symptoms, and they do experience some of the same symptoms as Vietnam veterans do, which is uh, chronic insomnia and uh, 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 anxiety and depression. Um, uh, I, I would say the Vietnam veterans and that generation does show better insight into their own conflicts, uh, what it means to... Uh, be a combat veteran um, and uh, how it's how it's affected them. Um, uh, I, I quickly want to say a few words. I know we're under some time constraints, and in the question and answers, we can we can go through some of this. But yesterday, I met with one of the uh, chaplains uh, who who works at the VA, and um, uh, had a very interesting discussion with her. And uh, I actually am going to invite her to both my, my Vietnam group on Friday and my Korean group on Tuesday. And uh, uh, I, I, I thought she, she raised some very important issues, moral issues, uh, issues of losing faith after experiencing combat, um, uh, shame and guilt issues uh, that are such a, an important part of the work we do. Uh, she mentioned two authors in particular, and... Uh, 
Uh, one of them, uh, who I, I realized I was somewhat familiar with, Maxine Kingston Hung, uh, recently appeared on uh, Bill Moyer's uh, show, uh, and uh, Edward uh, Tick, who uh, wrote a book uh, which I'm anxious to uh, purchase and, and read, and that is War and Soul, and he does spiritual retreats. Uh, and she was rec- she recently went on a spiritual retreat and was talking about that, and I thought it was an outstanding uh, thing to do. Uh, there were a couple of staff members who also went with the veterans on the spiritual retreat. So the pastoral approach is something that uh, we, we, we're using uh, more and more as well. Um, um, uh, the recurring themes in our groups, uh, in my group, death of a group member. We were just dealing with that recently. Uh, One of my Vietnam veterans in in my Friday group passed away. He was 59 years old. Um, um, We're not sure of the cause of death, uh, how this affects the group. Well, it was interesting. One of my group members uh, said, you know, I didn't know him that well, but I felt horribly about the death. Um, And, and in discussing this and exploring this feeling, you know, it reminded him of losing uh, a, a comrade in his platoon that he might not have known very well. But it affects the entire family. Uh, and I do want to say that this is, we often refer to the group as a family, you know, and uh, and this is very, very important that we we do that. Um, the uh, issues that uh, there, and I quick, uh, quickly want to mention some uh, just some uh, political issues you know uh, this is the second major conflict uh, war that I've worked uh, through at the VA I was there during the the Persian Gulf War in 91 and uh, now of course with the Iraq War since 19, uh, 2003 and this, uh, this creates a uh, much more difficult uh, atmosphere to work in. Uh, I mean, not only do we have more veterans coming in for treatment, of course, Af- uh, Afghani vets and Iraqi vets, but this tends to be a, a, a triggering mechanism for many of the veterans that we work with. We're seeing this all the time. Uh, some, of, some of our veterans, many of them, are drawn to turning on the news, uh, watching what's going on, uh, seeing the news reports of, of the war and, 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 and taken uh, to, to the battlefield, literally, uh, by the news. Um, and uh, this tends to trigger more symptoms uh, in our veterans. So it makes uh, the work that much more difficult, actually, uh, with uh, the Korean veterans that I work with and Vietnam veterans that I work with. Um, uh, also, from a personal point of view, you know, the, the, the you know, we often try to uh, uh, tell ourselves that we're going to be totally objective in in the work that we do and be be professional, but of course, you know, wars affect us too, uh, and and uh, I, I think we would be less than honest if we we didn't say it didn't have some effect on how we approach our work, you know. Uh, I mean, we try to be uh, impartial and non-political, but these issues do come up, of course, working at the VA. They come up all the time. So uh, 
with that being said, uh, maybe I'll stop and uh, we could uh, move along from there. <laughs> okay. I uh, don't feel that if there's anything you've held back that you'd like to go into a little bit more, we, we will go until about a quarter to one. So um, I don't want you to feel pressed to shorten anything. Um, I, for one, have had my ears cocked and I've been listening to every word because there's such richness in what you're presenting. Um, my students, faculty, uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to have you um, ask questions, pursue a line of inquiry, um, and uh, You've been very generous in being aware that, that the dialogue will make this a richer educational experience, although you could keep talking as far as I'm concerned. But I see Trust a hand. <laughs> Please. Uh, well, I, 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 my Friday group, uh, my Vietnam group, there seems to be a, uh, an equal number of um, uh, African Americans, uh, Latinos, and, and Caucasians in that group. Uh, the, the statistics may show, uh, because uh, combat veterans uh, who served in the front lines in Vietnam, uh, in particular, are uh, uh, people of color. Uh, we we may find, and, and and Jeff, you may have some of the statistics on this. We may find a, a greater number of uh, African American, Latino uh, veterans coming in with post traumatic stress, uh, and um, uh, so I think that's an important question for many reasons. Uh, because I think um, working with issues uh, involved with um, uh, crossing uh, cross, uh, crossing cultural and, and racial uh, lines are extremely important, um, and uh, we uh, so that that's my answer. But you may want to uh, expand on that. Um, um, again, I, I think that's a it's a great question. Um, it. There is no question at all that uh, the statistics show that African Americans, uh, Hispanics, and actually also uh, uh, Native Americans and Native Hawaiians experienced a higher uh, exposure to combat. Uh, and in terms of the, the total, um, whether that was due to the various missions or uh, that they were assigned to, but the overall burden of trauma was higher, and therefore, because we know that the cumulative exposure to trauma often determines the severity of PTSD, there's a likelihood that, um, that those groups experience a higher overall level. But you have to be careful about overgeneralizing, because there are lots and lots of uh, Caucasian veterans who experienced unbelievable uh, amounts of trauma and some 
minorities who may have uh, experienced relatively less. So you can't make uh, hard and fast conclusions. Um, the other thing about it is that uh, I think that it's not only the experience of trauma in combat itself, it's also the experience of the homecoming and how that interacts with the uh, trauma history so that people who come back having all of these problems and all of these traumatic memories and so on and then find that it's extraordinarily difficult getting a job and housing problems and other forms of prejudice mm -hmm. and so on compounds the experience that they bring to it um, and of course that those problems aren't necessarily worse for veterans than other groups, although oh, you could, could argue be. that they, in some cases they are, but it clearly compounds the PTSD having to deal with all of those other burdens. Yeah. And so having a group in which, and oh, the other thing I was going to say is um, the military is a, is a very complicated institution and in many ways uh, has actually done enormously well in terms of promoting integration, in terms of promoting the sense that people should be treated uh, uh, equally regardless of, of background. But it is also true that lots of veterans experienced a great deal of interpersonal um, uh, negativity, racism, et cetera, within the service, and that can be a component of their PTSD that then may manifest itself in some of the group process. So uh, sure. it's important to be sensitive to that. It's, it's not only the trauma itself. Sometimes it's the experience with other uh, veterans. So let's say a, a, a black American from an urban center may encounter a redneck from Georgia or whatever and have, uh, and have some real bad experiences. Well, even beyond that, I mean, uh, not just verbal bad experiences. We have examples right. of uh, patients who right. have experienced uh, sexual trauma uh, because of uh, uh, race. We have, uh, I was working with a patient just this week who was beaten up severely. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was a racial um, incident uh, that he experienced. But I think, uh, you know, there are special issues that uh, we have to keep in mind when we're dealing with uh, veterans of color who are returning from, from combat. Uh, as Jeff pointed out, I, I think uh, there are added on problems. Uh, you know, when we live in a society where still there are, 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 there's racial discrimination, so uh, when you add that on to their, uh, their combat experience, it poses a real challenge, I think, to, to work uh, with a lot of uh, with people of color, especially if you're not a person of color, you know, uh, in that sense, I think, uh, you know, the VA in, in some respects needs to bring in more people, uh, more therapists uh, of, of color. I think it would be helpful to do that. Um, I'm going to hold off on your second part. I see there's okay. a hand, and we can get back to you okay. a little bit later. Julia, um, my question was um, as veterans age. Um, are you seeing two different populations in terms of people that were possibly higher functioning over the earlier part of their lives and now the PTSD is worsening? Or are these mostly people that have had these issues throughout their whole lives? And is, that, is, it, is it getting worse now also as they get That's another very, very good question. And um, as the 
group leader for our World War II group that makes these Korean vets look like uh, youngsters. Uh, we uh, have some uh, observations on that. It, there is no question that uh, aging does introduce many uh, new issues that are not present or prevalent in the, the younger veterans. Um, number one, it introduces the uh, fact that as people get older, uh, they are subject to more and more illness uh, and physical problems. Number two, they're exposed to more and more losses. Okay, they have uh, either spouses who are ill or die, friends who pass away, uh, concerns about their own mortality. Uh, and so all of those things, besides being difficult for anybody developmentally, and as uh, Erickson talks about in the stages of, of life, um, it also has the effect that those losses reactivate and trigger the PTSD symptoms related to losses. So that, in a sense, there's this constant resonance between current situations that elicit emotional reactions and the past traumatic events, and often there are layers beyond that that go into childhood issues. A, a large percentage of, or significant percentage, have histories of some uh, childhood abuse or deprivation that add to it. So as people age, there's this accumulation of loss and additional trauma. And in addition, as people age, some of the symptoms of PTSD get worse for non-PTSD reasons. So people with PTSD have problems with their memory. Well, as you age, you have more problems with your memory often. People with PTSD may be irritable or angry. Well, as you age, often there's some degree of disinhibition, and people get somewhat uh, uh, less able to regulate or dampen their emotional impulses. And so those things can, can create additional uh, problems. And the other part of the question was, did, are there the, these two sort of pathways? Um, the answer to that is yes. There are some veterans who cope quite well for a long, long period of time. And they may cope at the expense of you know, becoming a workaholic or compensating in various ways uh, and containing their symptoms, as Steve was talking about, keeping all of this inside for a long, long time. You may be able to do that and still manage. But then at a certain point when there are psychosocial stresses or financial stresses or, or just aging-related illness, uh, your ability to compensate may break down. And so a lot of those symptoms then come flooding in. There was an interesting study during the Gulf War um, in 91 in Israel when it was being uh, rocketed with the Scud missiles that showed that a, a number of Holocaust survivors were especially vulnerable to a reactivation and that they had been functioning reasonably well for a period and then all of a sudden became very symptomatic. That's an example of how late in life some event may trigger it. And, and we see that with some World War II guys who are come, come in for literally for the first mm -hmm. time for treatment mm -hmm. 50 years later. So that can happen. But you can also have the other pathway where people 
became symptomatic right after their combat experience, and it may fluctuate up and down depending on how they're coping, but it remains at an elevated level for most of their life, and so you get that uh, pathway too. I mean, it's that, that much more incredible because a majority of our veterans have worked for long right. periods of time. Uh, they come to us when they feel overwhelmed by the symptoms and cannot function the way they did. Uh, they've worked for 30 years, 40 years, uh, and when they get into their mid-50s, they find themselves overwhelmed by these feelings, by these symptoms, and, you, and, and, and they're going through midlife crisis multiplied by hundreds. I mean, it's um, so... Uh, they find themselves not being productive like they were at one time, and this is a terrible jolt to them. So. There's a question from my student, oh, Greg, and uh, if you could speak up because we would like to record your question. Uh, thank you both for being here, first of all. Um, my question was, um, you talked about <coughs> some of the members of the group being involved uh, for years, and, and it kind of sounds like their role changes to being more of a mentor. My, um, my question was about um, how you address um, issues of uh, members uh, potentially becoming dependent on the group. Um, and I don't, I don't know what um, the approach is as far as uh, um, you know, avoiding that. Well, I, I think that's an excellent question, and that has been raised on occasion with uh, my Friday group. Uh, there have been people there for 10 years, uh, some beyond 10 years. Well, you know, um, my approach to this is to, um, is to allow someone to stay in the group as long as they feel they need it, uh, that it benefits them in some way in their life. It may benefit them less therapeutically than it does in a social sense in a sense of being part of a community, uh, something that they cannot get outside. Now, I think uh, this is an issue that we're always kind of, kind of re-examining. And uh, again, uh, my approach has been to, to allow people to stay in the group. Uh, we've had people leave. Of course, we've had people leave. Many people leave um, uh, when they felt they were ready to leave, and we agreed that they were ready to leave. Um, and they've gone on to uh, to do other things. Uh, but I think this is an issue. I think that's going to always come up for us. Uh, but my sense is that the group is working so well for all of the group members. Uh, even the members who have been there for a long period of time, that uh, my sense is it doesn't hold them back in their lives, that it adds to their quality of life. I think if I really felt that it was not, if, if, if it was holding them back in, every, in any real sense, that I would, I would discuss it with them and take some action. We would, we would take some action on that. Um, I don't know, Jeff, you, you might have yeah, some I, ideas I, on that. I, I do. Again, yeah. I, I think it's a very important point, and it's one of the questions that has been raised, especially in an era that uh, uh, emphasizes evidence-based treatments and shorter treatment models and cognitive behavioral <coughs> slash exposure 
uh, type treatments, all of which have have shown uh, some efficacy and some uh, and and are important uh, treatment modalities. Uh, but I'm a believer, and we we are that there's a that there's room in the treatment universe for for different models. Uh, and in fact, we have some of the other models within our program. We have some short-term and trauma-focused uh, groups as well. Uh, but I think that the, uh, I, I would come back to a, a point that, uh, I'm not certain, but I think it was Winnicott who talked about there being a, um, an internal holding group, not, um, and a, an intrapsychic sense of there being a collective group of objects in the uh, child's development that, uh, that they can rely on. And I mentioned that in, in trauma, these internal uh, assumptions and these internal representations of benign objects get badly damaged. Well, one of the things a group like this does is to provide a holding environment both externally, because people care about one another very, very deeply, and for example, when a um, when a veteran uh, lost his his wife died, they were incredibly supportive. When uh, recently this other veteran who passed away, and everybody was, uh, when that happens, it's not uncommon that some people may relapse on alcohol, and other people go into deep and even suicidal depressions, and other people feel overwhelmed, and watching how they bond together and help one another through, very much like how the platoon in combat helps one another to get through absolutely horrific, terrifying experiences. If I could just so, add, uh, mm -hmm. it extends outside of the, the group in the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a telephone list. Everyone has each other's telephone number. There uh, is communication outside of the group. In, in, in some respects, there's tremendous support that goes on outside of the group. Um, and uh, a patient uh, related to me that he called a fellow veteran from the group and uh, had an opportunity to, to uh, let out a lot of uh, mm. feelings, tears were shed. Um, uh, this is something he doesn't even get an experience in the group itself. But, but outside of but it. I also yeah. want to emphasize that it's not just about providing emotional support when people are hurting um, and providing that over an extended period of time as they go through the various crises in their life. It's also a group that does encourage and uh, even, not, not really push, but en encourage people to take steps in the present. So, for example, there's one veteran in, in Steve's group who... Uh, recently began taking tennis lessons and learning Italian. There are other people who have participated in this program that Steve uh, set up and working with computer skills. There are people who are pushed to explore various interests and, and activities in the present. And so if it were simply a group where people came and complained about their benefits or rehashed the same stories over and over again, you could very well say, yeah, that, that may be outliving mm -hmm. its usefulness. Right. But in fact, it's providing this degree of support for people that still go through phases of incredible emotional pain and helping them through that 
and at the same time refocusing their attention right. on the present and what can you do now. So there's a By lot. By the way, there are, there are two other veterans who are also going to school uh, following the lead of that, mm -hmm. that other veteran. Uh, question over here. Please speak. Hi. Um, I have oh. a question Little out. Okay. We're trying to get your voice to be recorded. I have friends who who come back from Iraq and found it really difficult to get services for variety of reasons, either technicalities that prevent them from actually getting through the door, or things happening such as um, having great difficulty scheduling appointments continuously with the same therapist and finding it really difficult because they're really open to two different people they're meeting with. Even I met a friend who had a therapist try to push, a VA therapist try to push a religious agenda on him. And I'm just wondering, as therapists, how aware you are of, of difficulties actually getting in into therapy, and um, if to what degree you know if you're aware of it, and, and relative to that, um, what can be done, or what should be done, or why? What are the causes of that? Well, do you want to uh, the answer to that is anytime we hear something like that it's very it's very disturbing uh, you know the uh, I won't speak for the the institution at large but I know that at least within uh, within our segment of it we uh, try very hard to have uh, open access to have rapid uh, scheduled appointments so that people can be seen uh, the same day initially for a brief kind of uh, triage and contact and then are within the PTSD program can be seen within one week um, typically um, you know there may well be larger systemic issues about people coming in from various different uh, uh, pathways and I, I know that in the primary care uh, section the, the medical section uh, they have tried very hard to provide therapists or, or psychologists who can see the patient uh, uh, on site when they come in. But clearly there's a lot of work to be done if that's happening. And yeah. Can I just say, I, yeah, I, I think we need to do, be doing more outreach, uh, particularly uh, uh, with women, mm -hmm. uh, so that women can have better access to, to VA services. That I think we're lagging behind in. Uh, traditionally, it's been a men's institution, the VA. So I think that is something very important. There's a layer of, layer of bureaucracy that is uh, a problem with the VA and any big government institution. Um, I, I uh, particularly want to raise the issue of compensation, which uh, service-connected compensation. When veterans come in and apply for compensation, usually the process. Uh, takes a very long time. Uh, uh, there's a lack of staffing. Uh, compensation cases are farmed out, even uh, from New York to other states. And this can actually interfere with the therapeutic process at times. The frustration of the veteran waiting for his compensation, the focus becomes or starts to be, uh, begins to uh, uh, focus on the compensation, the money. Uh, and these are people who have relatively little income at this point. So, you know, there's a lot of improvements that must be made uh, in the VA system. And, uh, and, yeah. and, and so what, what you see, though, is that staffing issues? I, I think there are staffing issues. I think we, we get entrenched in this bureaucracy. 
we need to simplify, simplify, simplify things uh, so that people can get the treatment they need and deserve. So I think we have a tendency to overcomplicate uh, with paperwork. You hear this all the time, you know. Uh, so uh, I think we need to get at treatment, and uh, we can do it. We can do okay, it. I have another hand here. Oh. Would you please speak up, Adana? Uh, yes, this is just a follow-up to um, Greg's mm -hmm. question. Um, in terms of suicide, because I, my immediate thought of having been, been there for quite some time and still having such a large group, you said 25, 30, 30 mm -hmm. Yeah, w an interesting thing about this Friday group that I do, that we usually have the same number of people in the group every week. It, it, it ranges from 20 to 25. Now, there are about uh, 35 to 38 registered in the, in the group, um, but it seems every week there are certain people that don't show up, and it, the, the count is usually 20 to 25. Um, so it seems to work. Why it works th that way, I'm not. I'm not sure, but uh, but it does. Uh, now you asked the question about. Uh, is there a cutoff? Like, has it, has it been a challenge? Because you know, I'm assuming there are more and more veterans coming in. Now, let's see, we have veterans who are online. Well, thank God we have uh, uh, other groups now. I remember when this group was the only group actually treating Vietnam veterans. It's one of the reasons it got so large, I should say. Um, but now we do have a number of groups, as Jeff has pointed out, uh, to treat uh, Vietnam veterans in other, uh, other eras as well. So uh, the referral process to my group at this point I rarely take referrals uh, outside of my own practice in the hospital. Uh, I screen patients, we all screen patients, but I usually will refer a patient that I see for a screening into my group if he's appropriate. Uh, and I, I don't get too many outside referrals at this point because there are other groups going on. Uh, but there's a balance there. Uh, again, I can't answer exactly why there's a balance. But there is a balance, and it's worked. I don't know. Maybe well, Jeff can uh, can do that. I, I can't answer precisely <laughs> how that uh, came about, but I will say that there are there's a very wide range of groups in, in our program. We uh, at various points have had uh, up to 20 or more different groups running concurrently, uh, so it's a very active group program, and they include a very wide range of sizes. There are some sort of classical small groups that may have, you know, six to eight people. There are some mid-sized groups that may have, uh, you know, 12 to 15. Uh, the World War II group that I run now typically has 18 people each week. At one point, that was closer to Steve's group in terms of having around uh, mid-20s. Uh, so there's a, there is a wide range of sizes. Um, the other thing I would say about it is that, of course, there is some limit. Uh, these are not town halls. They're, uh, they're <laughs> groups, so we, we can't, have, uh, can't have more than, say, I don't know, 35 or 40. At, at some point, it just becomes impossible. Um, but the point I want to make is if, if you read about um, different models of group therapy and even the very sparse literature about groups. We, we talk about evidence base and that, that's important. The reality is um, 
at least as of 2000, 2001, when the, uh, this um, uh, consensus guideline book called Effective Treatments for PTSD came out, um, and the chapter on group therapy in that book uh, listed listed basically 20 studies of group therapy total. Uh, and of those 20, I believe only two studies were randomized controlled studies, and a small handful had, uh, had some controls but were not randomized. So in a field that has really taken off in terms of the amount of research, uh, there were very, very small numbers of studies that showed modest positive effects, but really was not able to discriminate or distinguish among different treatments too much. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't distinctions to be made or that additional research won't define that. The point I just want to make briefly about it is that the uh, groups that run in practice in the real world often don't fit neatly. Okay, so Steve's group, for example, has elements of a typical supportive group. It has elements of a psychodynamic group. It has elements that, as most therapy does, that will use anger management approaches, that will use uh, various cognitive restructuring approaches, but not necessarily in a systematic or manualized way. And so it becomes very difficult to tease out exactly what is it that's, uh, that is the effective component, except to say that there is something about this sense of bonding and closeness and caring, and the ability of the group to allow people to tell their stories, and then by giving feedback about it to help the person differentiate their own responses to it. So, but, oh, oops. Okay, a couple of hands. We don't have a lot of time. Ivana, and then um, Vanessa, and then if we have time, Amina, okay? Um, my question is about your own experience in your life, and I'm not sure Well, that, that's an excellent question and goes to the heart, I think, of um, what it means to be a therapist working with PTSD and how you use yourself as a therapist. Um, I, um, I did not serve in the military. Um, it's, that's not to say that I don't have some knowledge of the military. Uh, my father served in World War II and I remember him talking about that a lot, looking at his medals when I was a child, looking at his uniform when I was a child. So, uh, so there's some relationship to, to the military. Um, there are veterans whose first question uh, out of their mouth is, are, are you a veteran? And of course, I'm, I'm honest in answering that, that, that I'm not. Uh, I often do say my father served in the military. I think that that helps a bit. But I think the real issue is uh, how you convey to them your compassion, your willingness to listen, really listen. I refer to it as active listening. I am a very active listener when a veteran comes into my office. 
and I hear what they're saying. I listen and I hear what they're saying. And they see that. So that becomes the overriding issue as a therapist working with PTSD. Uh, these are often people who feel that they're not heard and they've never been heard. That's one of the things that makes them so frustrated and angry that no one hears them. Sometimes they don't know how to verbalize something to have someone listen and hear. So the, the, the term active listening is a very important part of my work. So I think it overrides the fact that I may not be a veteran. You know, many years ago, the VA had, not exclusively, but mostly, uh, hired veterans to do this kind of work. And I, I don't think they were any more successful uh, than, than uh, we are, civilians, uh, uh, are, uh, that are doing the work now. So um, uh, to some it matters. I think to very few it matters. Uh, to most it does not matter, as long as you're there to listen, to hear, and to help them. And I would just add to that that it, it has something to do with the willingness to be open right at the beginning, not just about the fact that you didn't serve in the military, but to express a degree of both humility and curiosity, to be able to say, it's absolutely true. You know, there are a lot of things that you were going to bring up that I will not have experienced and there are a lot of things that I can probably never fully understand, not having been through it, that's true, and there's no reason why you should yes. trust me right at the start. Our, jo our job is to earn that trust, not to expect it. And if you take that kind of approach based in mm -hmm. a kind of authentic curiosity, I want to learn about you. I want to understand it. It actually may be a positive in that here is a civilian who's accepting of a veteran with all of these problems, um, you know. Uh, so I, I think it actually can be turned into a very positive thing. Um, because often veterans have difficulty being accepted by the civilian world. They feel rejected. They feel turned away. So. Well, um, I would say not so much in terms of the symptoms per se. Uh, trauma is trauma, and regardless of what that trauma is, it's likely to lead to the same kinds of re-experiencing and avoidance and, and arousal symptoms and so forth. But there are clearly differences among the conflicts. Um, one very powerful difference has to do with the issue of whether it was so-called conventional military conflict between defined enemies in defined uh, uh, military units, or was it a guerrilla conflict where you didn't know where, who was the enemy, where they were coming from. Uh, there are clearly differences in terms of how that affects the sense of uh, potential danger and where it's coming from and the difficulty in trusting your perceptions of things. So um, 
guerrilla conflicts versus conventional conflicts, there are some differences. Um, and also, of course, the, the nature of the homecoming, whether you're received as heroes or whether you're received as losers and villains makes a big difference. Now, it's possible to overstate that also. Okay, there are lots of World War II vets who were received as heroes and everybody said, and yet they felt that people didn't have a clue what they had been through uh, and that it was just a kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, an enthusiastic, self-congratulatory approach from society, but that in fact they didn't understand anything about the nature of, of war. So, but th those are two differences, anyhow. Would you like to comment on that, Steve? Uh, I no, was, I, I, was, I, I think that covers it. Just one. The current uh, political feelings about the wrongness of the creation of rationales for a war in, in Iraq mm -hmm. and the impact on the, those coming back from that conflict as opposed to other conflicts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with the Korean uh, veterans, uh, there actually is not closure on that conflict, on that war. Uh, there's an, an arms, a, a uh, you know, a very fragile piece uh, on the DMZ. So, so a lot of the Korean veterans feel that the war, an, uh, another war, could break out uh, any day. Um, you know, I think. Uh, you know, the last few wars we would have to look hard to find a justification for, so I think it's, uh, we're dealing with uh, a lot of veterans who uh, are coming to the conclusion upon their homecoming that maybe it was not worth it, and dealing with that conflict uh, about being wounded either mentally or physically and whether it was worth it or not, what was the cause and in fact, what is the outcome is uh, a tremendous conflict, um, and um, so we, we, we have to we have to deal with that as well. Amina and then Abigail. I think those would be our last two questions. Oh, okay. Um, Steve Burnett. Very quickly, you were saying that you know the war has an effect on you know you guys too. Mm -hmm. For example, my mom is a two-time vet. Um, she's still serving in this current war. I'll leave my political feelings about that to the side. What I have a question on is, um, are you working, doing any work with the secondary trauma? Because this isn't only happening and affecting these, these um, particular veterans, but they're affecting their families, their loved ones, their friends, et cetera. Um, I know you said that there are parenting groups and up to 20 groups at a time and things of that nature. What are you guys doing, if anything, to be supportive, not only to veterans, but to their extended family? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the answer to that is not enough. Uh, there, it is enormously important the uh, impact that the veterans experience has on the family and on their children, which I, I personally think is the most neglected area in all of mental health, uh, and that I think that providing services or providing support for families is tremendously important. Historically, there has been a great deal of difficulty at the VA, which has eased somewhat, uh, but that the VA basically did not allow uh, providing services to non-veteran family members or 
uh, and we had to get special permission even to have this couples group uh, that we ran for a number of years. Um, and so I, you know, the one thing I would say about it is that there, there is an ongoing effort to try to expand that. Uh, I know one of, one of the therapists who's not here has a, an evening group for OIF uh, Iraqi veterans where their partners are invited to uh, at least some of those groups. Um, and there is an effort to do some outreach, but it's, it's not nearly enough. Uh, some of the services for family members really are directed through the veteran outreach centers that Steve mentioned, which are affiliated with but not part of the VA. So a lot of uh, spouses can go for their own treatment, families can go, and we will often refer people to the outreach centers, the vet centers. So. There is a Vietnam veteran who sits in my Friday group whose two sons mm. had been in Iraq, and this was an issue we okay. dealt with in group, uh, very painful for him. In some ways, he felt he felt some guilt feelings uh, related to uh, did they join the service, go to Iraq because of me? Uh, did, so there, there was a lot of uh, ambivalence. There we have one that. one veteran whose uh, son was killed in Iraq. And uh, it was a, you right. know horrible uh, talk about triggers and reactivating stuff. But, so, Abigail? Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a lot of social work not just at a micro level, but at a macro level to affect institutional change. Are there any plans to increase recruitment of social workers, not just as individual or group therapists, but as administrators and benefit managers? Um, let me just say, first of all, that um, having been very fortunate in having some incredibly talented social workers, uh, uh, of whom Steve is an example. We, we have others as well. Uh, I'm all for that. Uh, I don't have any real direct say in these, you know, interdepartmental or administrative decisions about who gets hired or the opening up the lines of, uh, but I'm, I'm all for that. So beyond that I don't know I don't you know, know what to say I, I don't yeah, know I, of any immediate plans yeah I agree uh, wholeheartedly I think the 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 social work approach uh, the holistic kind of approach that social workers bring uh, to treatment is is wonderful and I would like to see as I said earlier I would like to see social workers uh, not only more social workers being hired as uh, you know line therapists but in administrative I mean there are PTSD programs around the country that are uh, that are are led by uh, social workers, uh, um, who you know, and uh, but I I'm glad we have uh, Jeff, but <laughs> you know we we uh, but it, it, it's certainly possible. In fact, in the Bronx, uh, well, that's the psychiatry department actually, or is led by a social worker, but. You know, there's no reason why social workers shouldn't be hired more at the VA. Um, there is a tendency for social workers as disciplines to get along better with MDs, I have found. Now, I don't know why that is. You know, MDs and social workers seem to get along very well, um, as opposed to some of the uh, PhD psychologists. I don't... I, I don't we can do everything they do. Um, well, can do a, a heck of a lot, and... Uh, but um, I think uh, MDs tend to be more open to the discipline of social work and appreciate it in, 
in some ways that uh, some of the PhD psychologists don't. But uh, that's my, my, my thoughts on it. But, uh, yeah. Um, Professor Burnett, They do they now. Well, uh, I think that's an excellent point. I think actually we should be doing more than what we're doing. Uh, uh, what helps me personally uh, a lot is um, having a sense of humor, of course, but uh, uh, you have to keep a sense of humor to, to do this kind of work. But uh, processing some of this material uh, with Jeff, I do that with a fellow social worker who works next door to me. So at the end of the day, we may talk about uh, our day, some of the patients. Um, we've actually had some very, very intimate discussions, um, you know. Um, so uh, we try to, uh, at the work level, to process some of this stuff as much as possible. I think we need to do more of that, actually. Uh, I think we're, we're mostly involved in clinical meetings and more formalized meetings, and it might be nice, actually, uh, not that we have to have a therapy group of our own, but to discuss more about how this is affecting us. Um, you know, outside of uh, work, uh, you know, a, a scotch and soda. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But that, forget, yeah. forget the soda. <laughs> forget the soda. Hold the soda. But that, that is... Um, <laughs> but uh, you know that 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 is that is uh, you know uh, outside of the VA, I I, I try to involve myself in things uh, that uh, are uh, energy uh, uh, depleting, uh, like working out with weights and things of that nature. And just to uh, uh, amplify that a little bit, I basically I agree with with all of that. The informal interactions even if it's a f whether it's a few minutes or going over and spending a half hour at the end of the day just uh, schmoozing talking about um, the details of a particular case all of those things are very helpful in in sort of uh, decompressing a little bit as well as getting some feedback about the specifics of the case um, 
In terms of vicarious traumatization, I certainly believe that that does happen, can happen, as a result of the impact of hearing about the trauma. Um, and certainly when you hear about large numbers of traumatized people, you're hearing about lots and lots of trauma every day, so there's a cumulative toll. But I happen to believe, this my personal take on it, that vicarious trauma for many people is less about how you handle the, the details of those traumatic narratives, although there may be some people that are very sensitive to that. I think it's more about systemic issues of the overload administratively of how much work, how many patients, not having enough time to see them, feeling like you have to manage these very complex, very, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, dangerously suicidal patients, and you've got 10 minutes between patients. And the cumulative toll that the system can take is often more important than just the fact that hearing about the trauma in Vietnam is so upsetting. So that's my take on it. Uh, in terms of dealing with it, obviously the thing Steve mentioned, but also just having a life. You know, going out to a baseball game, going hiking, going uh, kayaking, whatever those some of the things I like, but whatever whatever one uh, enjoys doing to do it. <laughs> so, well, that's a great question to end our discussion today. Um, I think I could speak for everyone. I could hear a pin drop in this room. Doesn't always happen when I'm lectured, but. This was a wonderful opportunity, a great learning experience. And the tape that is being made today is going to be, in a week or so, I hope, a part of our coursework. So we will have this as a resource to turn to, to uh, review so much material that we were able to learn today. This was uh, just exactly my hope that today would, would be a chance for the students to ask questions, to hear about this work. Um, and um, I want, I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say thank you for being so generous. Thank you for doing this wonderful work. And um, as future social workers, I think that you probably spread an interest here in um, continuing and um, expanding on what great work you're doing. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. And let, let me just say in, in closing that if people do have additional questions or in the course of your work you uh, get stimulated by some paper on trauma or you just want to talk about a particular client or case, uh, we're very open to having people call us and we're happy to discuss Keep things. Keep your phone on the hook. Right. So... So uh, obviously during the day, it, it sometimes gets very hectic and busy, but certainly if you uh, contact us, we're, we're glad to uh, talk with you. And that goes for the rest of the team uh, as well. It's not here, so. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, okay. It's, uh, uh, the, the main number for the VA is 212-686-7500. My extension is 3154. And my extension is 3152. If you're even interested in coming over to sit down, to talk, we can arrange for that too. Very generous. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Okay. It was a pleasure.